Good afternoon, brothers. It's a privilege uh, to speak to you. Uh, just to be clear, what I'm reporting on right now is not the Congregational Services Report. That will come tomorrow. Uh, but in that report, I mentioned that there's four things Congregational Services does to try and serve you and our church body. And the last one is, is kind of looking at the trends within Wells, doing statistical analysis. Um, Wells has collected statistical information from congregations for over 40 years. So in the last five years, we've started to do some inferential statistics to see what do those numbers potentially tell us and what does it mean uh, for our ministry efforts moving forward. So that's what I'll be reporting on now. So we flipped the order, but it, it shouldn't matter too much. Um, if you're interested in finding the statistical summary, if you haven't seen it yet, it's right on the, on the front page of the convention website. Um, down at the bottom, you'll see 2022 statistical report. Um, that's where you'll find that. Um, just some preliminary people. Sometimes people will ask, why even bother with statistics? I mean, we just heard we live under the, the under the cross. Uh, so what's the point in even really looking at them? And ultimately, it just boils down to it being a stewardship issue. Jesus calls for us to um, exercise wise and faithful management. I think we understand what the faithful means, that we trust God's promises, that we act according to, to his will. Uh, but the wise part in uh, front of us is not talking about spiritual wisdom uh, as much as it is horse sense. Uh, Jesus is saying he asks us to look at the situation around us, to look what's happening in our congregations and our synod, and to use the God-given gift of reason uh, to inform then how we approach our ministry strategies. I believe it was Professor, uh, President Rich Gergel who was the first person I heard to use this. I don't know if it originated with him, uh, but he talked about how we, God calls us to use the first article gift of reason to think through how to best proclaim second article truths about Jesus Christ with third article confidence that the results of our efforts are entirely up to the Holy Spirit. So the growth of the church, both spiritual and statistical, is entirely up to the Holy Spirit because only he can raise the dead. Uh, but he does do that work through us. And he gives us the solemn privilege and the glorious responsibility of using the gift of reason to think through how it is that we approach ministry. That's why we do statistics. Um, if, you, if you mind me, or don't mind me not quoting Luther, but instead of quoting a, a great business consultant, James Collins says, you absolutely cannot make a series of good decisions without first confronting the facts. And that's what this body is. It's the decision-making body of the wells. And so to make good decisions, let's wrap our brain around what seems to be, to be the facts. Uh, so getting into that, why the deeper dive in 2022? Um, normally that stat summary is about 12 pages. It's over 30 pages. And there's a number of reasons. We wanted to, now that we're a couple of years after COVID, really assess the long-term impacts that the pandemic had on our churches. Uh, secondly, there's a lot of talking points that are out there about the challenges before us and, and to address the veracity of some. For example, the problem is that Wells couples aren't having kids. I'd say that's only half true. Or we have rec a record pastoral vacancies. It's true in a sense. Um, so let's, what's the fuller picture? We wanted to, to dive into that in the stat analysis. And then finally, uh, to help assemble data in the production of Wells' next long-range plan, Professor Otto mentioned that Christ through us is not only going to be the theme of our next Synod Convention and the celebration of our 175th anniversary, it's going to be the, the name, the title of the next long-range plan where we ask God to bless uh, synodical and congregational efforts over the next eight to ten years. This data is helping us with the formation of that plan. Um, so in that stat report, here's, this is on one of the very first pages, it shows those bars represent Wells' starting membership and finished membership at the end of each year. Uh, so you can see that it's been going down every year uh, for the past decade, uh, but you probably noticed uh, something interesting in, in 2021, it gets pretty small, and then 2022, it jumps um, to the largest number ever. Uh, um, 2022, we had almost 10,000 lost members or decline in membership. Uh, so put it in perspective, typically Wells, over the last 30 years, we lose about 1% of total members a year. That 10,000 loss represents a 2.8% drop in one year. Uh, so that, it's, pretty, it's pretty telling. But what's interesting about that year, there's the total numbers, 
is in that, in that same year, uh, there the, the light blue is average in-person worship attendance in the wells. So you just kind of see the impact of COVID, that in 2020, we didn't lose a ton more members than normal, but in-person worship just plummeted um, as there was lots of, lots of mandated lockdowns happening at that time. In 2021, it was a small amount of total membership losses, our smallest in about eight years. And I, I would attribute that to just elder work being hard to do in 2021. Um, a lot of people didn't want you to come into your homes or if you'd call them and say, hey, we haven't seen you in worship in four or five weeks, everything okay? They'd say, oh, we're, we're, we're watching on, online every week. It just made elder work hard to do. So losses go down, uh, but you see worship attendance coming back. And then 2022, uh, worship in-person worship attendance rose by 8,000 people. That's the largest one-year jump ever in Wells history. I think what happens in 2022 is a lot of churches just are now doing intensive shepherding work. Uh, they want to figure out, post-COVID, who's still with us? And what they found is there are a lot of people who left during COVID. What they also found is there are a lot of people who had left prior to COVID, and they just had never identified it. Um, so what's happening now, we just call it in that report, a post-COVID shorting sorting, which we believe is going to continue for the next five years, that you're going to see high number of losses in Wells total membership, at the same time seeing in-person worship attendance ticking up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and when exactly it levels off, uh, not, not, not certain. But that, that seems to be what's going on. What's striking is when you start to group things uh, decade by decade. So here's the, fat, the past five decades uh, uh, of, of Wells membership, total gains, total losses. So you see in the 70s and the first part of the 80s, we were gaining members, shrinking a little bit in the 80s and the first part of the 90s. That's where 1990, Wells reached its peak at 421,000 members. So the decade after, 93 to 2002, that's the first time we lost members. We lost 16,000. Uh, um, but we're still over 400,000 total members. The next decade after that, 2003 to 2012, we lost 22,600. So we not only dipped below uh, 400,000, but was noticing noticeable is that the number of losses increased by a fair amount. I mean, a 36% jump decade over decade in losses, that's noteworthy, which means what happens in last decade is absolutely startling because we had losses in a decade of 50,000 people. That's a 120% jump from the previous decade and it brings us down to 331,000 members. Uh, the good news is you can't keep having growth of losses and it just it mathematically doesn't work out. Um, the bad news is, if you want to call it bad news, that the wells is still large enough that there can be increases in losses. And if nothing changes in all the underlying things that can cause gains and losses, which I'll get into in a moment, there will be increases for the next two decades. A forecast about a 40% increase in the next decade means losses of around 69,000, so that by 2033, we'd have about 262,000 members. The decade after that would be the worst one. Uh, 2034 to 43, losses of about 83,000. And at the end of that, so 20 years from now, we'd be down to about 179,000 members. Again, that's if nothing in the underlying trends like birth rate, adult confirmations, backdoor, backdoor losses change. Um, so what, what, where is all this coming from? And we need to talk about types of gains and losses. In the stat summary, we basically break it into three different categories. Life cycle would be, um, gains would be births to members who are then those infants are baptized and they become members of wells or are pulled into the, our church. Losses would simply be wells people dying. Spiritual gains would be things like adult confirmations, affirmations of faith and children of those people. Spiritual losses would be like removals, releases, excommunications, uh, people who are just lost from wells. Wells movement, that's transfers in or out, that certainly affects uh, congregations' total membership. It doesn't really affect wells' total membership, uh, as that should be a loss. So when you look at spiritual gains and losses, uh, um, so growing from the inside versus growing from the outside uh, over the last uh, couple of, last decade, here's what you see. 
You'll see that, go back a decade to 2013, we had net spiritual losses around 5,800 people. And that's what we kind of had averaged for a while. And we had net spiritual, uh, or net life cycle gains, so in other words, more births than deaths, of about 2,400. Meaning you net lose about 4,000 or a little fewer, which was about 1% of our membership, which is what I said historically is what we had been losing is approximately 1% of our membership. But you'll notice that net spiritual losses remained flat and now 2022 spiked and we said that's going to continue for a couple of years. And meanwhile, you see what's happened to net or life cycle gains. Three years ago, for the first time, it flipped. And we now have net life cycle losses. In other words, we have more Wells people dying than we have uh, babies being born to Wells couples. Uh, the last three years, we're at 3,000 or lower. It was only nine years ago that the birth rate was closer to 6,700. Um, so it's kind of a collapse in, in, uh, in the birth rate. Um, there again, you see that. Wells now, deaths have in increased. Wells births. Um, this groups births into five-year segments along with non-communicant total membership into five-year segments. So that would be Wells members 14 and under. So you see in 1987, we had about 102,000 um, people in Wells that were 14 and under. Uh, but in those same five years, we had, what, what does that come out to? 44,000 births. Compare that to the last five years when we've had about 19,000 births. And so total uh, um, non-communicant members is down to the mid-60,000, so a reduction of right around 40%. This, of course, has then changed um, the average age in the wells, so that we've gone from being about 75% communicant members to now 80%, uh, and that, that percentage goes up at least three-tenths of a point every year, uh, as just as we kind of continue, continue to age. So a status quo model forecast, and uh, if any of you have studied statistics, they talk about con uh, confidence intervals. When you've got 96% of churches turning in your data every, every year, the confidence intervals are very, very high. Obviously, the farther out you go, the more nebulous it, it comes, but certainly in the next decade, decade and a half, we can say if nothing changes, that's kind of where, what membership looks like where not only do both trend down, total membership and communicant membership, um, but we increasingly have a higher percentage of our church body be, being communicant membership. Uh, this, I think, needs to affect, we need to wrap our brains around this for everything we discuss. So this is just meant to be illustrative. Uh, but like when we say we need so many more called workers, well, okay. 1990, that was the height of Wells membership. We had 70 communicant members to every one called worker. So let's use 2022's per communicant giving numbers, which was just over 1,400. That means that those 70 communicants would give close to $100,000, which not only covers the, co the, the, the salary of that called worker, but obviously there's a lot more to the cost of doing ministry than just salary. That's typically only about 60% of your cost. There's facility, there's operational costs. 2022, it's now 56 communicants for every called worker, meaning it's closer to $79,000. Again, the only point, I'm not saying that that's good or bad, it's just we have to wrap our brains around that, that if you say we want to increase called workers, what you're also asking is that we have a business model for running ministry that increasingly doesn't rely on offerings as being the primary funding source. Where are the other funding sources come from? Well, we won one of the largest private school systems in the country, so there's tuition, there's choice dollars. Um, I'm shocked by the number of churches just getting out in the wells that where they operate on the basis of endowments, um, that they'll have a church that has 600,000 so they can do a cash burn for a while and still afford a called worker uh, because of they have endowments build up. But again, this is, I'm not saying this is good or bad, it's just saying as we're planning for the future, when we say we need more called workers, we need to wrap our brain around this reality. Like, let's say someone said, it would be great if we would have 5% of all Wells kids go into ministry. Would be. What you mean is you eventually have a church body where you have one called worker for every 19 lay people. How exactly does that work out? We need to wrap our brain around that.
pray for the workers, but we also have to plan God's gift of reason. How exactly does this, does this all work out? So what do we do about this? In this part of the report, I just want to address various things that you'll hear people suggest. I hear a lot of people suggest we need just to adopt pro-natalist strategies, which means uh, let's convince our young people to have, to have more babies. Uh, um, okay, uh, um, I think that the narrative is out there that Wells young couples today have substantially fewer kids than they used to. The data does not bear that out. The American birth rate has collapsed. The fertility rate in America, fertility rate is the number of children that the average woman has in her lifespan. It's now, depending on whose data you trust, 1.62 in America. That's down almost half in the last 40 years. America's fertility rate, or Wells's fertility rate, has declined at the most 0.4. So it's not that we're having substan our couples are having substantially fewer children. What is the issue? 2015 was the first time we started to ask churches to provide how many members they had in certain age categories. So here I have 18 to 24, 25 to 34. Those would be childbearing years. In 2015, there's the numbers. In just five years, there's the numbers. In five years, about a 13% loss in baby baby-making aged uh, couples for, uh, um. so it, it's, it's not so much that our birth rate has collapsed as much as it is, this is where when we have backdoor losses, it tends to come from young adults, and we're losing them in great numbers, which means we're going to have fewer children. Just to illustrate this point, I'd ask you, as you look at your congregation in the last 20 years, what's the bigger change? Do you see that young couples are having substantially fewer children? Or do you see that you're, there's just a lot young, fewer younger couples? That your church is aging? I'm not saying A isn't a factor. I'm saying let's not guilt all our young people by saying we assume you're not having children. The reality is, so I'm Generation X. If you wanted millennials, Wells millennials and, and, and Gen Z to have as many children as my generation, Generation X, did. They don't need to have as many kids as Generation X did on average. They need to have twice as many. So if you're you know, a millennial and you're planning on having one child next year, if you can please have two, that would help us out. So, again, I've used this joke now four times in a row, synod conventions. Yes, we want to have Bible studies and, and sermons that, in, that encourage uh, young couples that children are a blessing from a, of the Lord, that it's a wonderful vocation to be a parent. Maybe hand out a bottle of Chardonnay for the couples on date night and see what happens. But we've got to face the reality that to flatten the membership decline in Wells with a purely pro-natalist approach, which I hear some people saying, we just need to have more kids, that is completely unrealistic. We would need the birth rate to increase by 300% tomorrow. So if you're planning on having one, if you could have three next year, we'd appreciate it. So the conclusion, we certainly want to teach young people that being a parent is a blessed, joyful vocation. The issue of fewer Wells couples is substantially larger than young Wells couples having fewer children. Therefore, pronatalist strategies in the short term could have at best a minimal impact. So what else can, can we, using God's gift of reason, think about? We hear a lot of people say, well, let's use youth education as outreach strategy because people are looking for private education. And indeed, if you add up our enrollments in, in elementary schools, uh, in, in early childhood ministries, preschools, and in early Lutheran high schools, Wells has the highest enrollment as it, as it has ever had. So we're just going to pull those unchurched kids into the church, and that's one way that we can attempt to, to grow our churches. All right, let's think about that. Um, so here's a comparison of the enrollment in our schools, um, our Lutheran elementary schools, from 10 years ago to now. You see that the bottom bar, the, the, dark, the dark purple, that's total Wells membership. That's actually declined by 13% in the last decade. Uh, what's increased by 100% is the number of other church children in our elementary school. So this is Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, non-denominationals who just want a Christian education, a private education. That's doubled. 
Um, and, and I'm not saying those aren't mission prospects because some of them are nominal Christians, um, but some of them aren't. Some of them are faithfully attending their, their, their church bodies. Uh, and then um, you see the, t the very top bar. Um, these are unchurched, pure prospects, unchurched people uh, going from 1884 to over 4,000 for 113% increase. Um, and it's the same thing in our preschools. We see there the biggest jump, the 86% increase, is in purely unchurched parents that are making use, uh, use of our preschools. So you would say there's definitely an opportunity there as the Lord is bringing to our front door these unchurched families. Um, there's the, just the numeric changes. We'll move past that pretty quickly. Um, and yet, while we've, we just said we've more than doubled the amount of unchurched kids in our schools and preschools over the last decade, uh, this graph is interesting. So the, blue bar, the, the, the taller blue bars, um, those are adult confirmations that have nothing to do with some sort of educational outreach. The dark blue bars, that is confirmations that come out of uh, um, preschools, Lutheran elementary schools. You notice anything about the dark blue bars over the last decade when unchurched enrollment has doubled? No movement. Um, and on top of that, it's worth noting, it's still three to four to four out of five adult confirmations have nothing to do with a preschool or Lutheran elementary school. So sometimes I, 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 the talking points that I'll hear will be, well, it's going to be hard for us to reach anybody because we don't have a preschool. 80% of adult confirmations have nothing to do with youth education as ministry. So it's not like you have to do it to reach the lost. Uh, um, and on top of that, we're not capitalizing on the potential that's there. Um, when you look at adult confirmations that have come out of preschools over the last five years, it's 78% of our churches haven't had any. Uh, the flip side of that is there are some that have had a ton. Uh, let's looking at Lutheran Elementary School. So last year we had 578 adult confirmations come out of the 284 Lutheran Elementary Schools. 50 over 50% of them came from just 10% of those schools. So more than half of those adult confirmations came from just 28 of those Lutheran elementary schools. In preschools, it's even more startling. 224 adult confirmations out of 362 early childhood ministries. 50% of them came from the top 5%. So over 55, 56% actually. 56% came from 18 out of those 362. So clearly there, there are some churches and schools that have realized how to capitalize on this mission field uh, that the Lord has brought to us. Uh, so our conclusion is there's potential with this strategy if harvest strategy tactics can be gleaned from locations where God seems to be blessing the efforts. In other words, we look at where they are getting adult confirmations through the preschool or the Lutheran elementary school and ask, are they doing something different? Uh, if they are, and that we could replicate those tactics elsewhere, and if those tactics would be more broadly implemented, and if God would choose to bless those tactics, because ultimately, spiritual growth, statistical growth is entirely up to him. Another type of possible strategy for addressing the challenge, and here's where I think the rubber hits the road, a strategy of personal witnessing. Uh, what do I mean when I say that? But when, well, as we, a lot of times what we talk about when we say evangelism, we're talking about corporate outreach, which would be efforts by the corporate entity, the congregation, uh, um, to connect with people in the community. So mass mailings, Facebook ads, and stuff like that. Personal witnessing is efforts by the Christian to engage with unbelievers and unchurched individuals that God brings into their sphere of influence. So it's more of a personal, every member type of, type of responsibility. Um, why is it important um, that we lean into personal witnessing? All the different groups that study American Christianity, so there's Barna, there's Pew, there's Lifeway, they typically divide unchurched Christians up into different categories. I've tried to synthesize all of them down in, in, into six. Uh, the first is the shopper. So this is someone who still calls themselves Christian. They want to go to church. So each weekend they're hopping around to a different church, hoping to find the right fit that they can join. Then there's the disengaged. This is someone who still calls themselves Christian, but for whatever reason has stopped going. Uh, maybe they took a job in, a never, in another city, never found another church. They still go Christmas and Easter. They feel guilty that they don't go more, but for most of the point, they're disengaged. Then there's the turned off. 
Uh, this is the person who had some sort of bad experience in the church. Maybe they had a fight with their pastor, or maybe they uh, disagreed with some doctrine in their church body, and so now they're turned off on church. Uh, they might, might still call themselves Christian. They might just call themselves spiritual, um, but they're, they're, they just have no interest in organized religion. There's the happy humanist. So this is someone who, he would say, you don't need religion to live a moral and purposeful life, that you have that potential. Every human has that potential within them. But I call him the happy humanist because he would say, but if you like church, that's great for you. I, I just don't need it. Then there's the assailant. Uh, this is the person who is vocal in saying that churches are actually harmful to society which according to a 2017 Pew Research study showed that's about one-third of Americans under the age of 30 would agree with the statement, churches do more harm than good. Um, they would say, we promote prejudice, we promote misogyny, whatever. Um, but the assailant groups in America, these are people who vocally would speak out against the Christian church. And then finally, there's the unexposed. And, and this is in, an increasingly large number of Americans. They just don't know what Christianity teaches. They maybe know there was a guy named Jesus, but they literally know almost nothing beyond that. So you kind of got those six, in, those six in your mind. You can kind of think the shopper and the disengaged. That might be kind of what you might think of as low-hanging fruit. You know, we could maybe pull those into the church fairly easily if we'd reach out to them. Um, the, the assailant, a little harder nut to crack, but it's the Holy Spirit's work, and he can, he can convert anyone he wants. But just the shifting in American culture. There's the breakdown in 1980. Just think about it. One-third of unchurched Americans were looking for a church. So if you'd kind of have some good ministry going on and you'd get your name out there in community, some people would just walk into your doors and say, hey, I think I might like to be a member here. By 2000, there's the numbers. And now in 2020, there's the numbers. One in 20 Americans are looking for a church. So again, just wrap your brain around what this means. It means to say, we're going to get our name out there in the community that we have a really good church. Brothers, no one cares. You are pushing something they don't think they need. The people are not going to come to us. We're going to have to go and get them. Which is why pivoting away from thinking about corporate outreach is the primary way to do evangelism. It still has its place. But thinking of personal witnessing as the primary way to do evangelism, that's something we have to come to grips with as a church body. I think that uh, this personal witnessing is going to uh, require us to have a robust theology of presence. Uh, what do I mean by that? In Acts 17, uh, we're told that the place that you live, um, ultimately the reason ties back to God's broader plan of salvation. So you have 414 Mandan Drive. You want to guess what that is? That's my home, which I moved to six years ago when I uh, had this call. So there's 414 Mandan Drive. A theology of location says the reason I live in that home is not because it had the amenities that I wanted. It didn't. It is a fixer-upper. If any of you are handy, please uh, text me afterwards. I got some, some work for you. It wasn't because it was simply the house that we could afford. What, what a theology of presence says is the reason I live in that house is because of all the other houses that are around them. Uh, I know the names of everyone in all of those houses. I know whether or not they go to church. Um, how did all those introductions uh, get made? Through my wife, who's a social butterfly. I'm more, I'm more shy. Uh, but, but we think that God put us there for that reason. My neighbors know two things about me. They, most, they don't all know I'm a pastor. They know I'll make an old-fashioned, the size of their head, that's pretty good. And they know I'm a good listener. And so if their marriage is falling apart, they might be willing to come and talk to me. Uh, um, that's a theology of presence. I've been there five years. I've gotten one of those couples just this past Easter to come in, 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 in to my church uh, for Easter Sunday. But that's one. And there was, it was a couple. Uh, this this a theology of, of presence empowering a strategy of personal witnessing, I think there's a ton of potential here. Uh, a couple of exercises to illustrate the, the potential. Uh, imagine if this is the 40% exercise. So 40% of the 93,000 uh, uh, communicants who worshiped weekly last year engaged in this personal witnessing strategy. That's 37,000 believers who are sharing the faith, their faith with those that God brings into their sphere of influence. 
And imagine if those 37,000 are trying to invite their unchurched relatives, neighbors, friends to come to church and only 40% accept that invitation. The stats show it's, it's typically higher than that, like for Christmas Eve it's closer to 70%, but let's just say it's 40%. That's 15,000 visitors who show up. I guarantee you that's substantially more than all our Facebook ads put together. And let's say of those 15,000 who show up, prospects who show up to our church for worship, through an aggressive follow-up strategy and a great bit class, 40% of them join. That's 6,000 adult confirmations, and when you add in the children that'll come with them, that's 8,000 spiritual gains. That is double what we're currently doing. Switching from a strategy of corporate outreach to thinking more about personal witnessing. Um, another illustration. Communicant to adult confirmation ratio exercise. Imagine if Wells had one adult confirmation for every 80, 80 communicant members, we would have 3,300 adult confirmations. That was 2022. That's what we had, one adult confirmation for every 80 members. So you just do the math, it's not that complicated. If we could get one adult confirmation for every 40, which, does that seem like it should be hard? Like, I think about three, three tables would be 40. Imagine if all three tables, if you said, we're gonna commit to this. Twice a month, we're going to have some unchurched neighbor of ours over for dinner. And we're not even going to like, share our faith necessarily that first visit. We're just going to be friendly with them. And as the Lord provides opportunity, as those people who we're connecting to, as they have hardships in their life, we can give the reason for the hope we have. If 40 people were committed to do it, do you think that maybe they could get one a year? Number doesn't seem unrealistic, does it? It's up to the Holy Spirit, but it, my point is it doesn't seem unrealistic. That would double our adult confirmations. What if we could get it to one adult confirmation to every 25 communicant members? It means we would have 10,600 adult confirmations. And if you say, hi, and this is pie in the sky, that's unrealistic. One adult confirmation for every 25 communicant members? Add up all the membership in the South Atlantic and South Central District and all the adult confirmations, and that's their ratio. And I don't hold that up to say South Central, South Atlantic, that, that everything's perfect there. I'm just saying it's, it's realistic. What about if this year Wells had one adult confirmation for every 25 communicant members? Whoop, I already did that one. What about one to 10? We would have 26,500 adult confirmations. And if you say, hi, that is nonsense, one to 10. We have 48 congregations in the Wells that over the last five years have averaged that or better. It's feasible. It's the Spirit's work, but he works through us. I'm just asking that we would consider if we think differently about evangelism, instead of corporate outreach, personal witnessing, it might mean we do different things, do things differently when it comes to evangelism. And if we do things differently, it's up to the Holy Spirit, but maybe there will be different results. God, God uh, let's ask for that. 26,000 adult confirmations would be incredible. What would it require to make this work? It would require every type of person who's sitting in this room. So pastors, teachers, staff ministers, lay leaders, to say, I'm going to commit to this and to do it and to talk about it. And that's not bragging. It's not bragging if you tell your, your members, you know, I had two unchurched people over for dinner last month because I'm trying to connect with the loss that God has brought into my sphere of influence. That's not bragging. That's encouraging. That's spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. It's going to require us to do that because you can't ask your average layperson to do something that the leaders aren't themselves doing. It's also going to require lay members who understand that they have been called by God to share their faith, not simply support the called workers doing it on their behalf. Because lay, people, lay members have countless people in their sphere of influence that are not in their called workers' sphere of influence. Go back to that image of my, my neighborhood. It'd be unreasonable for me to expect my pastors to also know the names and the spiritual well, welfare of all those people that live on my street. It's unreasonable. The Lord has brought me into their sphere of influence. You into the sphere of influence of the people he surrounded you with, not your pastor. This is what it would take. I think this is the best chance for us to address this. Um, so I, I took out the post-COVID years uh, and just looked at the average elk confirmations, 1980 to 2019. Um, it's roughly 3,600 a year. We deviate at the most about 15%. 
um, year after year, maybe 500 up, 500 down, but it's pretty, pretty steady. Again, it's up to the Holy Spirit, but if we try approaching evangelism a little differently, could he double that? Could we have 7,000 adult confirmations in a year? If instead of saying, this is the church's job, every member in the wells would say, no, this is my job. I'm the evangelist, not Facebook. I'm the evangelist, not the mailing. I'm going to be the witness for Christ. Um, I, I pray that the Lord would bless that. So the conclusion, a strategy of personal witnessing has the greatest potential by a large margin to be impactful. It requires something of a cultural shift from thinking of evangelism primarily as a corporate effort to thinking of evangelism as a personal privilege. And corporate outreach efforts still have their place, but that cannot lead us to neglect personal witnessing, which my, my fear is that some, I, I mean, I've actually had people tell me this. I'm willing to write the check for the Christmas mass mailing. Just please don't ask me to, inv or, or, or for the Christmas newspaper ad, please don't ask me to invite my friends to Christmas Eve. And I want to say, God bless your generosity, but realize that newspaper ad has just been proven to do almost nothing. You inviting an unchurched person to Christmas Eve, seven out of ten will say yes. Um, so we can still do corporate outreach, but let's not use it as an excuse to not engage in more personal witnessing. Another strategy for us to consider moving forward over the next decade, I think, is a consolidation strategy, and this addresses a lot of the vacancy, the vacancy challenge. Um, you'll see that over the last uh, couple of years, our, our total number of congregations goes up. It started to dip a little bit in, in the last couple of years as, as closures have increased, but it kept increasing while membership was going down, which means just that increasingly level, the average number of members in a church was, was, trending, down, it was trending downwards. Uh, here's some, some of the numbers. So 1990, that's our peak membership. I find that total pastors thing fascinating, don't you? I mean, people say, we must have a lot fewer pastors today than we did. We have the exact same number. And we say, well, they, we must be putting them all in non-parish ministries. Not many. In 1990, it was about 11.8%. We're up to about 12.1%. So that would be things like all the teachers, the pastors who teach in our ministerial education schools, world missionaries, people like myself who work in Senate administration. It's gone up about a half percent, but it's not gone up statistically a ton. So what's the difference? We've increased the number of congregations with membership getting smaller and smaller. You see the ratio of weekly worshipers to parish pastors going from 163 to 1 to 90, 92 to 1. This is affecting uh, congregations' worship size. So let's just look at those last two columns, which is a decade ago to now. A decade ago, we had 8.3% uh, of our churches worshiping fewer than 25. It's now up to 13.4. A decade ago, we had 26% worshiping 50 or fewer. Now it's up to 40%. And 100% uh, uh, or 100 or f fewer than 100, uh, that's up to 69%. Uh, but just think about that. It's two out of five of our Wells churches are worshiping fewer than 50 uh, on, on any given weekend. To me, it, it raises the question of critical mass. Um, how, what does it do, say, say, for example, to a prospect? He walks into a church and he sees the church is only 15% full. That it can seat 180, but it's worshiping 27 it communicates a message to that prospect, which it's kind of hard to, to overcome. Or imagine that your, your, your school keeps shrinking in, in enrollment, and so that now you have four grades to a room in the elementary school. The data is clear that, yes, the American public is looking for private education in higher numbers. They are not interested in attending a, a school where you have multiple classes in a classroom. Um, so with consolidation, the primary goal is not um, help the vacancy rate. The primary goal is helping congregations achieve a larger critical mass uh, so that they can do more ministry. Just the possibility of this, when you think about what I said before, we have 460 churches worshiping less than 50 in worship. 50% of those churches are within 10 minutes of another. So that's 230 churches within 10 minutes of another church. At a two-to-one consolidation, we have 115 fewer co congregations. At a three-to-one consolidation, which I think is easily possible, we have 153 consolidations. The vacancy rate as, a pastoral vacancy rate as of a call day was 140. Is that still about what it's at? It was 140. So do we have a vacancy problem 
or do we have a deployment problem? That while dropping by 90,000 members, we've maintained an organizational footprint, a congregational footprint, as large as it was in our heyday. And it was large at one point for a reason. Um, when you start churches in the 1910s, and you have a lot of farmers walking in or coming in by buggy, you need a church every two miles. You do not need that now. Um, so would this consolidation um, be, be a path forward? The, ch the challenge of it is, is people, and rightly so, they're emotionally attached to things in their congregation. I mean, I've had elderly Wells gentlemen tell me my children were baptized in that font and now my grandchildren were baptized in that font. And I praise the appreciation he has for baptism. What I would pray the Holy Spirit would instill in him is the understanding that it was not the piece of wood in the bowl that did anything. It was the water in the word. And the word can be preached anywhere. And water is not too hard to find. Uh, so I understand the appreciation, but we got to come to grips with what I think is this question. What's better, more congregations or more and stronger ministry efforts? I would humbly submit it's the latter, and that through a strategy of consolidation, we could, we, we could achieve that. Now, if earlier we had elected Mark Schrader Pope, this would have been really easy. Like in the Catholic Church, he could have just said, you're closing, you're closing, you two are consolidating. We're the wells where we're a congregationalist polity. Congregations are supreme. It's up to congregations to decide if they want to do this. If you're open-minded even just to considering this, that's part of what my group in Congregational Services does, is just help churches in a geographic proximity assess, could we do more ministry for Christ's glory if we would consolidate rather than operating in our little independent silos? The means is Christ's glory, Christ's mission, the end, congregations and their ministry efforts. If we would have a decade from now 200 fewer congregations, but we're doing more ministry, that's a good thing. You maybe saw uh, one example of this in a recent Wells Connection. Um, three churches in West Dallas, none of them were tiny. Jordan was the smallest at about 160. Uh, they all consolidated because they were in uh, two-mile diameter. Um, and they not only consolidated, they rebranded. They just wanted to be, have all their members, and now they, it's a total of like 1,400, be able to tell their friends and family, we're trying to start a new church. And would you like to be part of it? Would you like to come with me and see what's going on at this, at this new effort? I, I just think this is a... Uh, has a lot of potential uh, moving forward. So conclusion, a consolidation strategy has the potential to help churches achieve a greater critical mass and thus enable them to do more ministry and it's the added benefit of reducing the total number of locations where a parish pastor is needed helping address the vacancy problem, which brings us then to the next strategy that I hear rumblings about, the new start strategy. And the rumbling I hear is, should we do it? Uh, 100, when we're vacant, 100 missions and new, with consolidation, I I've hope I've shown out we can, we can do this. Um, any church body that is serious about mission work is talking about now is the time to start new churches, not stop. Uh, that first one, that's PCA. The second one, that's more evangelical. But there's all sorts of church bodies studying this. And they say with all the churches closing, there's about 12,000 American churches closed last year. Now is a great opportunity for churches that are mission-minded to open new churches. Uh, so why should we commit to the 110 thing? Let me do an apple and apples comparison. So it's not fair to really compare a small mission to a Wells Church of 2,000 people. I would expect the Wells Church of 2,000 people is going to be able to reach a lot of people. But if you compare a mission church to uh, Wells Churches that uh, um, a total membership of less than 250, they have double the amount of adult confirmations. That whole missions kind of uh, demonstrate what happens when a church, when a bunch of members have a laser-like focus on evangelism, including that strategy of personal witnessing, which is kind of key in whole mission congregations. So double the amount of confirmations. That doesn't mean that we only focus on, on mission churches, though, because mission churches are only about, uh, Sean Young can correct me, I think it's 8.5 to 9% of our total congregations. So when you look at total 
adult confirmations from churches 250 or less, it's still the majority are coming from established churches. And when you talk about the larger churches too, it's 80% of churches, 80% of adult confirmations that come from established churches. Um, so rather than playing them against one another, should we open new churches or should we focus on established churches? I, I see it as a both and. Um, I see the, the 100 missions in 10 years um, to be the same, the, the opposite side of the coin of what I'll talk about tomorrow is Congregational Services Everyone Outreach Program, where the Commission on Evangelism is trying to help you inculcate the mindset that members have in a home mission setting where they're just like, we're all about evangelism. This is all of our responsibility. Because I think the gospel is so wonderful. It is too small a thing for us to simply open 100 new churches. Over the next decade, I want there to be a thousand churches that are operating with the same zeal and the same outreach mindset as all our home mission churches do. So reasons to commit to 110 opening new, new congregations fulfill Jesus' directive to be my witnesses. It's just it's what Jesus has asked us to do. They tend to model a culture laser-focused on evangelism, providing abundant examples of the strategy of personal witnessing and action. And those new congregations in places around the country where Wells doesn't have any congregations can help with member retention. I did a quick study. Um, if, we, if we hadn't opened the churches over the last 50 years, it's not just that we lose their adult confirmations. But think of, for example, uh, we now have seven churches, I believe, in South Carolina where we used to have three. Imagine a member would move to South Carolina and he lives an hour and a half from, from any Wells church. Does he stay Wells? Um, I, I estimate we'd be, we'd be down about another 70,000 people if we hadn't opened those new missions. Um, so let, let's commit and ask God to provide the workers uh, for this, this 110 thing. So what would happen if not only did we open 10 new churches a year, but through this process of consolidation, I'll talk tomorrow about our Merge for Mission program, uh, um, we had smaller churches consolidate into ones that had a greater critical mass. So yes, the total number of churches goes down in the wells, but I think our ability to reach more people for Christ um, might go up. I'm not gonna, just for the sake of time, I'm not gonna get into this, but there's also the potential for cross-cultural strategies. Um, our schools are much more diverse um, than our churches. Our wells wide, we're about 1.2% African-American, 1.3% Latino, uh, and yet that's about 20% of our schools, if I'm going from memory. Um, but to, so there's, there's an opportunity there. And then just member retention strategies, not just that we're trying to pull new people in, uh, but that we're trying to keep people from leaving. And the three groups that, that I would especially focus on are people ages 14 through 22. Commission on Discipleship is laser focused on post-confirmation uh, retention right now. Um, parents in a stage of transition. We have so many parents who they join a church and the cynic in me says they join the church to get the tuition break at the school and the second their kids are out of school, they're gone. That we, we notice a lot of Wells members leaving at that point. And then the third thing is single woman, um, where, which ties in with our birth rate, um, that we have trouble re maintaining, we, we have trouble maintaining single men, um, but, but single women, it's a little bit, little bit more difficult. There was the model I gave you before. Um, in the last part of the document, I, I have some um, models of if just modest blessings were, were given to us by the Holy Spirit, that we try some new things and the Holy Spirit would try modest blessings. So here's model A. We have adult confirmation rate in the top 5% of youth education outreach efforts. We're able to get that in 20% of our churches. So instead of all the adult confirmations coming from just a few schools, we spread it out to the, to the top, just 20%. Through personal evangelism efforts, the ratio of communicants to adult confirmations improves, peaking and holding at 40 to 1 in 2040. The Board for Home Missions opens eight new congregations annually. Annual backdoor losses are reduced to 2.3%, and Wells fertility rate holds steady. If all those things were true, this is what happens. In a decade or so, we start to flatline, and then there's modest growth coming after that. Model B, Adult confirmation rate in the top 5% of youth education efforts is achieved in 40%. So we kind of figure out how to crack this nut and we're able to reach these unchurched parents have our kids in our schools. Through personal evangelism efforts, it reaches 45 to one by 2035 and, and, and peaks at 21 to one in 2045. 
uh, um, which I think is, again, it's a, it's, it's a challenge, but the Lord can do anything. The Board for Home Missions opened those 10 new congregations annually. Annual backdoor losses are reduced to 2.5% of membership by 2035 and 2% by 2045. And Wells' fertility rate actually increases just, just uh, uh, 0.2. So if you're going to have two children, you now need to have two and a half. If we would achieve that, that's what happens. Again, it's entirely up to the Holy Spirit, but he does his work through us. And so I pray that we use God's gift of wisdom to think these various possible strategies through uh, and, and apply them in our, in our congregations and in our synod. Um, something that you'll notice with all three models laid on top of one another, the next decade, nothing much happens. What we do in the next decade sets us up for coming out of 2030, 2033, 2035, which is why that next long-range plan, which will be a major focus of the next synod convention, is, is kind of crucial. Um, it'll lay out, here's how we hope, under God's grace, to accomplish, accomplish these things. Um, and the theme, Christ through us. Um, that it's, we, taught, we heard a fantastic presentation on Christ for us. Next, next time, talking about what Christ does through us as we unleash the universal priesthood uh, in this ministry efforts. A shameless promotion, uh, if you go to lutheranleadership.com, which Congregational Services put on, uh, there's a ton of great videos, but look at Our Lutheran Moment by Pastor John Bauer. In it, he just highlights that all the um, chaos you see in American society right now, um, all the answers are ones that Lutherans have the correct answers for, that confessional Lutheran has. So the argument that he's making is this is not a time for us to cower um, or to shake um, over the numbers of losses. This is a time for us to stand up and ask God to give us courage and strength and to love our community rather than lambaste our community for becoming post-Christian. Let's love our community and bring Christ to them, uh, and now is the time for us to do it. Uh, so what can we do now that that, that long-range plan starts in two years? Just pray that the Spirit would create in us the courage to fully embrace the strategy of personal witnessing. Pray we can uh, replicate that harvest strategy in more of our schools. Pray that in locations where consolidation might make sense, church leaders and members would prayerfully consider the idea. And pray that God increases shepherding efforts with a lowered number of, of backdoor losses. Uh, Jesus said it's his job to build the church. He says, I will build my church. But he said he's going to build it on that confession of faith of, of who he is and what he has done for us. And getting that confession of faith out, that is all of our job. Uh, um, we can do this, brothers. There are a lot of characterizations about Wells, some of them true, some of them untrue. The one that makes me angriest is when I hear people say, Wells is an unfriendly church body. And I'll do a consult with a church where on Sunday morning I just kind of ghost in and no one says anything to me. And I'll point that out in the meeting after, after worship and they'll say, oh, Pastor Hine, we're sorry, we're just unfriendly. And I'm like, no, you're not. Because you were talking and fellowshipping with one another and enjoying the assembly of the saints. You were extremely friendly. It's just that you were so connected to one another, you missed when a guest walked by. And we can just open our eyes to the guests that God brings into our sphere of influence. We've got the friendliness to do this. And we've got the gospel, which is the power of God of salvation. I'm excited to see what the Lord does through us over the next decade and beyond. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions, if there are any, or comments. Microphone number one. Tom Tiedek, uh, Ascension Lutheran Church in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, you talked about uh, the proximity in your neighborhood and being an outreach evangelist where you are in your neighborhood. I'd like to suggest another uh, outreach Bible study for your consideration. It's a video Bible study series. And it's called Joining Jesus on His Mission, Be How to Become an Everyday Missionary. If you go on your computer to, um, it's called dwelling, D-W-E-L-L-I-N-G, 114.org. Uh, I did this Bible study uh, twice and uh, at two different churches. It makes a 
very significant difference in having everybody feel very comfortable with doing an outreach without adding another layer onto what their already busy lives are and just being friendly, inviting people over for dinner, doing what comes natural in your everyday life without adding another layer. So another consideration. Thank you. Again, joining Jesus on his mission. Microphone one. Luke Dahlberg. Luke Dahlberg, Hope Lutheran Church, Tyreed, Oregon. Um, first, I want to say, I am, as a former church president who was blessed to help with the conversion of a church, a dying church, into a mission church, I want to commend everybody here to take this seriously. And then the follow-up question is, during that process, our congregation had about 28, 26, 28 normally worshiping. By the time we completed the conversion, we were down to 10. So is there going to be a process in place, especially with the consolidation requests, to prepare leadership for the fact that there will be significant short-term losses in all probability? Uh, yes, I mean, that's, um, that is part of the Merge for Mission program. Um, I, that, that isn't universal. Um, I, I'd say there, it's, it's, it's typical that you're going to lose some. But, but when you say significant, that, that I have not witnessed that it's always significant. There are some people who are just going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not happy about this, so I'm done. Um, but it's typically not, I mean, it sounded like that was the majority of the church, and that's typically not what we found. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to, like, ignore your church, but, like, a noticeable amount. Yeah. People, it, the logistics of a merger are very easy. It's not, the, 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 the strategizing and the legal, legal aspects of it is easy. It's getting people over the emotions of it, and that's the Holy Spirit working through his word, helping them to, 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 to separate means and end, uh, that the end being Christ's glory. And when they get to that, when the Spirit brings them to that point, they're more open to the, the concept. Thank you. Mic microphone number four. Hey, Glade Delegate, Gethsemane, Omaha. Um, first of all, I just wanted to commend you on the study. I think it was very well done and appreciate the work being Thank presented you. here. Uh, my question is with the, the backdoor losses and the membership retention strategies, um, is my understanding that the, the total number of those throughout the Senate has been relatively stable the last few decades, but um, with some of those categories you mentioned, have you noticed any shifts in those, like where they're coming from, whether it's recent confirm ads or the parents of the schools, school children, like you mentioned, have... um, the, the the biggest shift that we see in backdoor losses is there was a time when it was fairly evenly split uh, between people just leaving the church, kind of quitting church, and them leaving the wells to go to a church body not of our fellowship, so they would join the large non-denominational down the road. Now it's about 90% are just quitting church. Um, so they're not, it just ties in with what I said earlier, Americans have lost interest in, and they don't see the need for it. Um, but that's really the only, the only shift. It's been fairly consistent that the largest losses typically come from young people. Um, for example, when I said we, we asked um, uh, age demographics in 2015, in, in 2020, we always ask it in years evenly divisible by five. When you go back and you count, like let's say you're looking at 16 to 21 year olds, and you go back and look at the birth rate 16, 17, 18, 19, 21 years ago, so total, total births and baptisms in the wells, and then what we have as far as that age group, it's always half. So we lose about half. Thank you. Microphone number two, this will be the last question, comment. Thank you, Paul Nealon, lay delegate from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Uh, thank you for your presentation, it was very informative. Uh, something that you uh, didn't touch on, and I think is very important, is a program that the Synod put out called the Peter Plan, and we implemented that through our elder board, and we saw a lot of success in bringing people back to church. Uh, 
we implemented that after the uh, COVID incident, I guess you would call it, and uh, we saw a lot of people come back to church because of that. Now, we also uh, had over 100 people who didn't come back to church, and they were released from membership, but we had, um, I want to say, 70 people who hadn't been to church in a year or more come back, and they're staying. So just put that out there. Thank well, you. Wellscongregationalservices.net is where you can find that shepherd plan. And, and thank you, brothers. Um, just to see Wells pastors and lay people go after those who were straying in the last year, it did my heart good. There has been excellent shepherding work done in the last year and a half, and it's, the, it's, bearing, it's bearing fruits. Yes, we're cleaning, <laughs> I don't want to say cleaning the books, but we're identifying people that have left the church. Uh, um, but our members know we love them and we miss them uh, when they're gone, and that's a good thing. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Pastor Hine. 